This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Rachel Withers, contributing editor of The Monthly, joined me to discuss the latest in federal politics. Then, Cameron Steele, coordinator of People for a Living Murrable, and water rights law expert Dr Erin O'Donnell joined me to discuss the Murrable River, Victoria's most flow-stressed river. We also discuss the community group's new film, The River Murrable, which is having local screenings around the area. Then, finally, Nick McClellan, Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story, joined me to discuss the latest news in the Pacific region. We talk about the constitutional crisis in Samoa, the coronavirus outbreak in Fiji, and the push for a third referendum on independence in New Caledonia. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm so delighted to be welcomed once again by Rachel Withers, who's the contributing editor to The Monthly. She writes uh, some wonderful columns, which you can read online, and uh, she covers federal politics. And we're going to be talking about that very topic. And uh, I know that many who listen to this show are very politically engaged um, and want to keep abreast of all of the issues. So we're going to do our best for you today, and we're going to cover as many topics as we can in some level of depth Uh, particularly, of course, the coronavirus situation and how that feeds into federal politics and, of course, how that ties to state politics. And then we'll be looking at some of the other issues that have cropped up during the week um, that may have and may have not really made uh, headlines. So that's all coming up. So I just want to welcome Rachel now and say hello and thank you for coming back. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you on the show again and to really get to the nitty-gritty. And uh, as we were saying off air, everything keeps changing. There are so many new updates even overnight and this morning. So uh, I've got the live blogs going to make sure we don't miss anything if it breaks. Mm. Um, But there have been some kind of major developments overnight that perhaps we'll start with given uh, it seems kind of urgent. And that is that we had a national cabinet meeting at uh, in Canberra, obviously, with the premiers, uh, with the prime minister. And uh, national cabinet obviously has been much vaunted as this kind of solution to create a consistent approach on some policy areas, particularly relating to COVID-19. Um, what did we really see come out of national cabinet which is obviously notable now because Daniel Andrews, Victoria's Premier, has, as of yesterday, uh, just returned to work after a a long extended sick leave. So there's uh, that element as well. And we've seen him really come out firing in terms of what he wants for Victoria. So I thought we might start with that, that cabinet meeting. Yeah, well, there was a a few big announcements uh, that Scott Morrison came out with late last night, Uh, came straight out of national cabinet. And um, I think the The biggest one and the one that really threw people um, online was that um, now anyone under 40 uh, who, you know, we're still not eligible for Pfizer, which is what's recommended for us, but uh, we can now go and get AstraZeneca uh, and GPs have their indemnity waived for that. They can talk to their patients under 40. Um, You know, and this this was a bit of a curveball because we've seen 
AstraZeneca go from being for everyone to being just for people over 50 to people to being just for people over 60. Uh, and now it's, it's back open to everyone. Mm. Um, and GPs are welcoming that one. Um, you know, that is the vaccine we have. Um, and there's a lot of people who were saying, if I could get it, I would. Um, so that's going to really change things up. Um, though it's expected to cause a lot of confusion today as people, you know, flood to the GPs um, asking questions and, you know, blocking up the phone lines. Um, but that was sort of the, the really the only thing they could do to speed up the vaccine rollout at this stage, which is kind of what people wanted from the federal government yesterday. You know, um, that's all the premiers are asking for right now is more doses in arms. Um, but the other thing we saw was something that had been talked about at the last couple of national cabinets, which was finally mandating vaccinations for uh, residential aged care workers, because, you know, we're, we're still sitting at, a, I think it's around 30% or something of aged care workers vaccinated. And so that had been talked about uh, since Victoria's last lockdown, which is, you know, we're getting on a month now yeah. since that one um, kicked off. Um, and so, yeah, that's finally now been mandated and the government's going to do a few things. Uh, you know, there'll be a grant program to try to, to cover leave um, for workers to get vaccinated and, and a little bit of sick leave if they need it after the jab. Um, but that's now going to be mandatory finally. Um, and it's, you know, I think I saw a bit of a reaction online last night that people were quite shocked that these things were only just happening now. You know, we, we heard that um, aged care residents and workers were supposed to be in the first group and were supposed to all be vaccinated by, um, I think it was April. Uh, and now we're hearing that um, it's mandatory for all aged work care workers to get it by mid-September. Mm. Well, aged care workers are frontline healthcare workers, so they really should be in phase 1A and phase 1B. They should already be essentially vaccinated by now, um, given their eligibility. That obviously didn't translate, and we had discussed that on this show, um, in particular the fact that uh, Victoria mandated that um, aged care workers needed to be vaccinated. So there was um, some kind of mandating at a state level, uh, but obviously the Liberal government, the coalition government, has been really reluctant to mandate anything which obviously they would say uh, does not really fit their supposed philosophy, although often you do see conflicts in their, their supposedly uh, liberal philosophy. So I wonder what does this really say about the fact that they've kind of given in to pressure, caved into pressure that has really been piled on them for months? Yeah, look, I think, I think with this one in particular, I think they did want to do it, um, but mandating any vaccine is really contentious. Like the health workers union actually didn't want it done. Um, but they're in favour of vaccination, but they didn't want a mandate on the workers. But when it comes to the aged care sector, you know, it's a federal responsibility. We've seen the aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, copping a lot of flack for um, one, how little, how few aged care workers are vaccinated, but also not even knowing how many aged care workers are vaccinated. Um, and so this is their responsibility. It is an area where we've seen the vast majority of, of deaths in Australia. Um, and so I, I just think the political pressure here was was too much, um, you know, not not to move forward with it. And, and a lot of people think this is quite a common sense 
um, policy, you know, mm. well, it's, it's not, it's, we're not mandating it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but we're not mandating it for the entire population. You know, some people think we should, but it's not going to go that far, but certainly certain types of workers who are working with the most vulnerable people, you know, that it's now finally been accepted that they need the job. Mm-mm. And also, um, I guess one of the interesting parts that, of the two developments we've just been mentioning um, was that that change in AstraZeneca advice, um, because obviously ATAGI, which is essentially the, the key group led by Alan Cheng, who's our deputy Cho here in Victoria, they're the ones who changed that eligibility from it to be for over 50s, uh, recommended for over 50s to now recommended for uh, over 60s. This is the AstraZeneca vaccine. And now, of course, this change at National Cabinet is really interesting to me because it's come so soon after that change um, essentially to say that uh, the the under 60s are eligible for Pfizer. I mean, you would be forgiven if you were confused as to what you should do, given how many times things have changed and also the fact that the kind of scientific advice and the key vaccination body has said one thing and National Cabinet has decided, well, I mean, you can choose to um, if you really want to, if you don't want to wait. And I guess the only other consideration that we might think of is the fact that the AstraZeneca vaccine has that three-month wait between doses, um, which means that it's less effective, the first dose is less effective against the Delta variant, just like the Pfizer first dose is, and it needs that two doses to have a really strong efficacy against uh, getting serious disease from this Delta variant that does seem more transmissible and more um, concerning to the community. So I wonder, you know, with that in mind and with people thinking, you know, what should I do and when's the Pfizer going to come back? Because as we know, um, the states here have decided that they need to focus on Pfizer dose twos. And so people are uh, even in that 40 bracket, uh, potentially waiting for their dose one to see when bookings reopen. I mean, if you, if you, taking all of that in as someone who's in the electorate and perhaps younger and has not qualified in the first couple of phases. I mean, how do you navigate that advice and and confusion at, at a political level? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you say looking at it as someone under 40, all of these people are in front of you for Pfizer now. Um, and on top of that, you just have no idea when the Pfizer doses are coming. You know, the government insists that they're ramping up, but they're still coming in at a trickle, really. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you're a person under 40, you've had, you've suddenly, you know, you've been told this this thing is not for you, like this is not recommended for you, and then, you know, within two weeks suddenly you can get it um, and you can't get the one that is recommended for you. Yeah, it, it is a confusing situation. But I think it's important to note that, like, it, the situation has changed so quickly um, because the, you know, the, the situation with the virus in the country has changed so quickly. Um, the reason that they are now allowing this is because the virus is back in the community and it's all over the country. Um, and so, yeah, the, the initial recommendation to take it up to 50 and then to 60 was based on there being no COVID in the community. The, you know, the the risk benefit analysis was that there's no COVID, but 
even when that recommendation came in, journalists questioned it. They said, well, this is based on there being no COVID. This is based on the idea of keeping the border shut indefinitely. Um, so, yeah, it just shows how quickly the situation can change because we clearly can't control uh, whether the virus is coming back in. Mm. And obviously uh, we've been seeing the Delta variant in the UK and in Indonesia and Fiji and Bangladesh and uh, Russia and South Africa, like even in France, uh, where they have a, a decent amount of the population vaccinated, things are really ramping up again over there. So, I mean, yeah. this is something that is an absolute global reality. And unfortunately, now we are currently faced with that, given that we've got this outbreak of the Delta variant of coronavirus. Yeah. Um, the it one makes, thing, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I would say the one thing I would say about the international environment is we've seen the federal government in the past few days, especially talking up how dangerous it still is overseas. Um, and there's this stat that both Scott Morrison and the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg have been using, which is about uh, 80% of the UK being vaccinated and still seeing 18,000 cases a day. And they're doing this sort of to excuse the fact that they haven't vaccinated us, you know, as if to say, look, this still happens even if you're vaccinated. But it's a statistic that's, it's, it's misleading. Uh, you know, that's a country that has a lot of COVID. Even, you know, even 20% unvaccinated is enough, you know, for 18,000 people a day to catch it. There's a lot of COVID in the community. But on top of that, the statistic isn't even true. Uh, that is based on the percentage of the adult population vaccinated. It's actually more like, um, I think it's down at 60% actually vac double vaccination in the UK. So this stat that they've been trotting out it, it throws doubt on how effective the vaccine actually is. Um, it, it shifts blame off themselves for not vaccinating us. And it's also just like completely wrong. Yeah, well, it is really disingenuous to say that if 80% uh, of the adult population has had one dose, at least one dose, that they're vaccinated because they're not actually. Like you do need to have two doses and wait two to three weeks after your second dose in order to actually be fully covered by what that vaccine's going to provide. So as you say, I mean, to, to trot that figure out, and it's not actually the first time that the government has done this. When they were talking about aged care vaccinations and how many residents have been vaccinated, we saw this... Um, kind of use of statistics where we would hear, oh, well, this many percentage of residents mm -hmm. have been vaccinated, um, but they would not, you know, d delineate or differentiate between people who've only had one dose, the first dose, versus those who'd had two and were fully vaccinated. So, I mean, it, it seems like a really key thing that, and it highlights an issue with Australia, that we don't really have transparent data around vaccinations as a whole in terms of the breakdown of first and second doses and, um, you know, which sectors are covered by how much um, an age breakdown, you know, a gender breakdown. These are the mm. kind of things you would think that you would implement before you started a vaccine rollout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've seen, um, I think, pretty much since we realised Richard Colbeck wasn't properly counting, you know, the people he's responsible for. We've seen some pretty good pushback from the media. Um, in particular, we saw we saw Sunrise pushing back against Greg Hunt at one point while he was spinning his, yeah. you know, deceiving numbers about doses versus actually, you know, people fully vaccinated. Um, and that's been, you know, really good to see. Even even a morning breakfast show um, pushing back against these these slippery figures. 
Well, it certainly says a lot, um, and I'm glad that that's making uh, a lot a bigger audience because, I mean, for anyone trying to follow along, there's just so much going on, and it's very hard when you're meant to trust someone who's in a position of authority and you can't quite know whether what they're saying is the full picture. Totally, yes, yeah. yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about the COVID outbreak before we get on to some of the other issues, because obviously last night we saw Western Australia uh, announce their own mm. lockdown with Perth and Peel. And this is a proper lockdown, of course. It's um, all the you know major shops will be closed. It's only for essential reasons. Um, there's far less discretion in their rules compared to the New South Wales lockdown rules, where apparently even jewellery stores are still deemed essential and it's up to your discretion if it's absolutely necessary for you to go to (laughs) certain retail outlets. So uh, hopefully we don't, you know, see people exercising their discretion too widely. Um, But we do now see Northern Territory, WA, uh, New South Wales going into lockdown in some form. And also, of course, there are other states that still have and have recently introduced restrictions, uh, for example, around mask wearing. So could you share with us, I guess, the, the major picture of where we stand and, you know, what is the kind of political situation between the states, but also uh, electorally for Scott Morrison and his government, given that we haven't really seen all the states kind of be affected to varying degrees at once in such a really serious scenario? Yeah, it is It is really all over the country now, well, in, in all the major metropolitan areas, really. Um, yesterday, um, it was actually almost. It was. It was very difficult to follow all the press conferences because we yeah. saw almost every premier come forward and announce something. Um, you know, whether it was further restrictions, um, and Perth's was the most dramatic, um, coming late at night, a new lockdown. But we saw, you know, even South Australia that um, didn't record a case yesterday. They made, you know, they sort of brought in gentle restrictions, masks in high risk settings, and no singing. Um, <laughs> it seems to be one of the earliest, earliest, lightest uh, restrictions that rolls in. Um, well, they did say don't touch a football, so I'm not surprised yes. about the singing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then, you know, um, in Victoria, we're, we're still wearing masks inside anyway. We saw, you know, the border with New South Wales tightening. Um, Queensland brought in masks everywhere. Um, so, you know, it's 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 all just everybody is trying to respond um, to these little pockets of outbreak. A lot of it has, uh, so Perth's cases have come out of Sydney, uh, but then Brisbane has had a few issues with its hotel quarantine lately that's uh, caused its own um, its own restrictions, but also it's, it's sort of indirectly responsible for or directly uh, responsible for um, the Northern Territories issues um, and they're having their first lockdown since the start and for the very first time ever they've got exposure sites yeah. um, public you know community transmission um, so yeah it's it's all very tense um, I think we're seeing most of the states take really really precautious really cautious approaches uh, as they have done throughout this pandemic except New South Wales so we're all, you know, as usual, we're all wanting every city to get their outbreak under control. But I think the one that we're all really watching is New South Wales because um, 
that's the one where it's not clear that the steps they've taken have been strong enough or soon enough. Um, yeah. And, and sorry, there's been a lot of controversy around that, certainly. Absolutely, yeah. And and especially, you know, as pe- now that Perth is going into a lockdown and, as you mentioned, a stricter lockdown than Sydney mm. because of Sydney, um, you know, this is what this is what people were worried about when people around the country were sort of, um, you know, concerned about Sydney's, you know, gold standard uh, contact tracing obsession, you know, that they were worried that if they didn't get it under control fast enough, it would start to affect other people. And now it has. Um, So that's the one I think we're all going to be watching. I think a, a lot of these other ones will um, fizzle out. You know, they're, they're in the, you know, a handful of cases and they're taking strong measures where they need to. Um, so, you know, it's it's all on New South Wales now. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's real concerns here that two weeks might not be enough for them. Um, but regardless of, you know, how much Perth is blaming Sydney or, you know, Darwin's blaming Brisbane, um, Ultimately, every single premier is also directing some blame now at the federal government because regardless of how, you know, the virus gets out um, or, you know, whether it came from another city or whether, you know, it's crossed borders, the reason we're all vulnerable to it and the reason um, it can spread is because most of the country is not vaccinated. And it's clear that um, while vaccines don't completely prevent transmission, they absolutely slow it down. Um, and if you can just break a couple of chains in the transmission, um, you know, we wouldn't be seeing this really, really scary situation. Um, so it's really starting to hit the federal government now. Um, you know, each press conference, there's a, there's a reference to vaccines and we just need more supply of vaccines. And, you know, we're asking the federal government, we're not in control of this part of it. Um, so, you know, of course we're seeing the federal government push back against that, you know, act like acting like it's not actually about the vaccines or even, you know, last week they did, um, push it back on New South Wales a little bit that, you know, also a coalition government, but, um, you know, they were keen to make it clear that New South Wales had some some fault for the fact that it, it you know, it went from an international flight crew to a uh, um, transport, like a limo driver for International Airlines crew. Mm. Um, so, and then he had the blame shifted onto him from New South Wales, even though yeah. it, what there was no, um, I guess, mandating of wearing uh, masks or being vaccinated for those drivers. Yeah, absolutely. They were just guidelines. Um, and, and he is saying he was wearing a mask uh, and he also doesn't think he caught it uh, at work, which seems a little unlikely. But, um, yeah, it's all about everybody trying to shift blame onto someone else. But at the end of the day now, it's so many months since vaccines became available that the buck ultimately does stop with the federal government because regardless of who else makes a mistake along the way, they could have had us protected. Yeah. And do you think, given that the states have played such a a critical role in actually delivering the vaccine rollout in that practical sense of the hubs, and of course we do have GP clinics as well through the federal government, do you think that that might muddy the waters for a voter when they're 
perhaps going to the polls come election time, which could be this year or early next year, and there has been speculation it could be soonish. Um, do you think that that may not uh, mean significant punishment for the federal government because there isn't as much clarity around their responsibility? Obviously, there is to us, but when we t- when we think about the vaccine, I mean, the average voter, I wonder whether they're, you know, thinking about who's ultimately responsible when they're, you know, going to decide who to vote for. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's an interesting point because it is, um, you know, it is really confusing um, to know who's to blame. But we have we have seen that the premiers have remained really, really popular throughout the entire pandemic. I mean, so has yeah. the federal government. Every government has been rewarded by how well we've supposedly done. Um, but the premiers have been more popular. The, the boost to the premiers has just been massive. So you do wonder if premiers continue to uh, try to communicate that um, any lockdown that mm. um, their citizens face is the fault of the federal government now, whether that will cut through um, and whether, I mean, it also depends on how well the federal Labor Party can cut through on trying to lay blame at the feet of the federal government, which they've been trying to do for some time now. They've been talking about vaccines and quarantine. Um, I'm sick of writing. Like a broken record. Yes. Uh, But it it might be cutting through now, especially over the weekend. We saw like even, I mean, we have have been seeing the Murdoch media um, point to the blame Put, put some blame on the federal government too. But um, really that, that that broken record vaccines and quarantine, you know, it, it's sort of become the accepted wisdom now that that's what's gone wrong. Mm. And obviously the media has a role to play in this in terms of how they're reporting the situation. Um, and one of the interesting parts that I just wanted to touch on before we move on was the fact um, at a state level and the the kind of interactions that Victoria had in our last and most recent lockdown was that when our scientific and and public health experts like the chief health officer and uh, Jerome Weimar, who's the testing commander, uh, were saying that this Delta variant was um, causing more instances of fleeting contact and fleeting transmission. And he uh, basically got roasted by uh, all aspects of the media, Um, even the more progressive elements, you know, quoting other scientists saying, well, it can't really be that bad. It can't really be much worse than alpha. And is it really that fleeting? You know, let's not be alarmist. And now we've seen, you know, each of the states, when they start to have a a Delta outbreak, they're all confirming what Victoria had initially said and experienced and warned the other states about is, well, actually this is, we are seeing kind of a different nature of transmission, that it's faster, it's happened quicker. It's meant that the people who gave it to one another didn't even even look at each other. They may have been in the same department store and didn't meet one another. So I just found that really interesting that there was that, you know, the political and public debate about how we talk about this virus and how kind of um, concerned we should be and how many, um, you know, steps we should take to reduce the risk of transmission, you know, that that can also be politicised. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I've found, as a Victorian, I've found all that really difficult, that fleeting contact stuff Mm. to listen to. I can't imagine how Jerome Weimar feels. Uh, But, yeah, the... 
there has clearly been a sort of a double standard now. There's a great piece in the conversation this morning from a, a media uh, expert sort of about the way that a narrative takes hold and a narrative took hold that Victoria was incompetent um, and it was just easier for everybody to the journalists to lean into that and to keep um you know going hard against victoria anytime another lockdown came in anytime it said anything about the virus um and that same you know uh narrative is not being applied to new south wales now that they're saying the very same things um and you know things that it had warning about if it had just listened to victoria but um yeah, we'll, we'll see how this plays out if the New South Wales lockdown drags on and if it does become apparent that they waited too long. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll move on for from coronavirus for a moment because I know people probably have COVID fatigue um, <laughs> at the moment. So let's talk about something that is really cr- critical to uh, the nation um, but perhaps doesn't get enough coverage in a real sense, and that is the Great Barrier Reef and many other really critical parts of the environment and things that we're very proud of but also economically reliant on for a source of tourism um, at a very minimum. And we have seen that um, UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, has said that the world's biggest coral reef system, our Great Barrier Reef in Queensland, should be placed on their list, um, which basically delineates that there are um, that it is in danger. That the kind of recommendation is ramped up in terms of the concern they have for this World Heritage Site um, and that it will be placed on a specific in danger list because of the impacts of climate change, which they themselves have said is, of course, Australia's responsibility but also a global responsibility because global warming and heating of the ocean is obviously not confined by locality. It is something that we are collectively responsible for and also nationally responsible for. But we have seen the Environment Minister, Susan Lee, uh, be very, very defensive and actually come out and be quite attacking towards UNESCO. So I just wanted to to check in with that because it seems that um, she brought on uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne to contact UNESCO's Director General and uh, to really complain about this this change in the list. And I wondered if you could bring us up to speed on this kind of controversy and I guess how it might be quite unprecedented in the sense of how we interact as a global citizen with these types of highly regarded UN bodies? Yeah, well, the, you know, the coalition's environment minister, as you mentioned, she's really uh, indicated that the government is going to challenge this, that they're going to push back. Um, They're very defensive of the reef being labelled as in danger, um, you know, because of you know what it what it might mean for tourism, but of course, more she's more interested in in the effects of a label rather than what's actually happening to the reef. Mm. It seems, which is coral bleaching, for example. Yes, yes. So um, many marine experts and the Greens and the Labor Party came out and said, "No, this isn't actually a surprise." Um, that was one of the things that uh, Susan Lee mentioned was that they'd been blindsided. But no, experts are saying this isn't surprising. We've been hearing warnings or making warnings for ages uh, about this. It's time to just 
you know, start listening and acting rather than being defensive and pushing back against labels. Um, so the other thing that the government has tried to imply, although they haven't done it overtly, is they've tried to imply that this has something to do with China. We saw a piece in The Australian implying that China's influence um, with they're chairing the World Heritage Committee next month, which is where the recommendation will actually be voted on. Um, there's been implications that they've had something to do with it and it's part of this ongoing, uh, you know, trade war, growing tensions, that it's them, it's their latest retaliation against us. Um, but, you know, UNESCO said, no, China's actually got nothing to do with this. Um well, it's a yeah. scientific decision, isn't it? It's something. Absolutely. And they said that it's – the funny thing was they said this is um, a process that's been in train for years and years. <laughs> it's not yeah. something they made overnight. No one should be surprised. Um, but, yeah, the, the government, I think, um, would like people, Australians, to believe that it's it's China's influence. Um, but, you know, they can, they can twist and they can fight and they can challenge all they like, but – um, the reef is in danger, um, you know, whether it's in danger according to this exact, um, you know, definition is going to be decided next month. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're keen to, to push back against the label being placed upon it. Um, and, of course, um, as the coalition often points out when it comes to climate change issues, no, they can't actually solve this all on their own. It is a global. It is a global problem. It is going to require global co cooperation, and they use that as a an excuse to get out of doing anything. Um, but you know, the warning from UNESCO is directed at the whole world. Um, mm. It is a call for greater action on climate change from Australia and from everyone. Yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, yeah, there is no reason to be concerned by a label when that's a realistic and um, true label that means we should be doing more. But, of course, if your ideology doesn't match that, then um, it's not going to be a welcome development. Um, I want to just quickly touch on the Nationals before we finish up, Rachel, and that is obviously because uh, Barnaby Joyce has retaken the Nationals' leadership from Michael McCormack, and we've now seen Barnaby reward those who had backed him in with the numbers, including Bridget McKenzie, and we've seen uh, those like Darren Chester, who supported Michael McCormack, lose his position from uh, Minister for Veterans Affairs and there had been a big kind of outcry about that because so many people in that sector wanted uh, Darren Chester to remain in his position and I found his commentary really interesting that he would still run as a national at the next election um, but added that, quote, he had been screwed over by the National Party twice in the last three years. So there seems like there's a little bit of animosity politically uh, in the Nationals and this um, obvious rewarding of those who uh, support each leader and those who don't. And that's not something new in politics, uh, but it does seem that it's more drama that the coalition government doesn't really need. And of course, Barnaby Joyce and his past behaviour um, may add to the drama and uh, that may not be welcome with an upcoming election. Yeah, look, it's been it's been a chaotic week. Uh, even before that reshuffle, you know, the, the Nationals came out with the, um, you know, uh, they, they challenged their own coalition government on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Uh, they've been out in the media being even more vocal against 
the very, very gentle moves towards a preferable net zero by 2050 target. Um, and they've, they've even been um, making noise about the government's um, childcare package, which, um, you know, was a big, a big, you know, measure aimed at women in the federal budget, you know, when we were yeah. talking about that a, a couple of months ago, um, and they're pushing back against that as well. So um, it's clear that they're going to be a less cooperative partner. It's going to be, you know, a, a chaotic um, sort of tenure under Barnaby Joyce, um, but, you know, they're, they're pushing harder for um, their policies. And um, that's, of course, why they put Barnaby Joyce in in the first place. Yeah, he certainly um, doesn't have the kind of same nuance as other leaders perhaps do and seems to speak his mind uh, a lot. So we'll see what happens, but we better leave it there, Rachel. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and um, going into the detail of this and also the complexity and hopefully uh, illuminating for us where some of this confusion will naturally lie given all the changes that we keep seeing um, around decision-making at a federal and state level. And also, uh, I'm sure you also send your best to every state that is currently in lockdown or potentially Absolutely. facing lockdown down yes and as victorians we've been there so <laughs> yeah we, we feel you and we're hoping that you succeed as soon as you can mm-hmm. thanks so much rachel for joining thanks us. amy this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website rrr.org.au you're tuned in to Triple R. This is 102.7 FM on your dial, or if you're streaming online at rrr.org.au. You could also be streaming on the Triple R app, which is pretty handy. And it's really great to be with you on this show, Uncommon Sense. I'll be here as usual until noon today on a Tuesday. And I'm really pleased, as I said before the break, to welcome onto the program two guests who are going to be speaking together uh, with myself about an issue that is really crucial. And it's been great to see that it's getting some traction in the media um, through such a wonderful documentary. The documentary is called The River Murrable, and it just had a local screening in Ballarat. It's going to have another screening very soon. I'll give you the details of that in Geelong. And uh, obviously those two quite large areas um, are very relevant to the Murrable River that uh, we're going to be discussing. So I'll introduce our guests. Cameron Steele is the coordinator of People for a Living Murrable, or PALM for short, P-A-L-M. Uh, you can obviously uh, search them online and, and find out um, their fantastic advocacy. And also uh, Dr. Erin O'Donnell is uh, someone I've actually spoken to once before on this show very early on in the piece for Uncommon Sense. I think it was perhaps 2017 uh, that we were talking about the rights of rivers with Erin, who is really interested in the groundbreaking new field of legal rights for rivers and so uh, 
about these two guests who are both experts on uh, rivers and advocating for rivers and talking about um, the, the kind of crucial role that rivers play, not just environmentally and economically, but also culturally. So, and that is something that the film draws out really beautifully is the cultural and, and human element to our relationship with rivers. Um, but this chat will be particularly about the Murrable River, which I'll be really interested to know whether you uh, have heard of before or even have visited before. So uh, if you have, feel free to tweet us and let us know um, at Uncommon Sense 3R and uh, I can draw you in if you do mention anything because I know that uh, looking at this drone photography in the film, it's such an absolutely stunning place and I can't wait to hear all about it. So I welcome Cameron Steele and Dr Erin O'Donnell now to the show. Hi there, Cameron. Good morning, Amy. Um, really pleased to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for having for coming on. And uh, also, Erin, hi, how are you? Good morning. So lovely to be here with you again, Amy. It's great to have you both on the show. And, um, yeah, as soon as I saw this film and this issue, I knew I had to talk about it. And uh, I've just been waiting <laughs> patiently for a week, so excuse my excitement. But, uh, first of all, I really want to talk with you, Cameron, about the Morrible River. And let's just kind of set the scene for those who aren't acquainted with the Murrable River, um, first of all, in terms of its location, but also its essential features, its essential uh, history and essential ecology. And I wonder if you could share with us what you've come to understand about um, the Murrable River, and we can tease out some of the elements that you mentioned uh, from what you say. Yeah, the, the Morrible River uh, runs from the Wombat State Forest uh, down past a whole bunch of towns basically to the east of uh, Ballarat and down to Geelong, and it joins the Barwon River um, just outside of Geelong. Um, it's a river I sort of grew up with, um, swimming in it. Um, I've uh, got married <laughs> near, the, near the banks of the Moorable, um, played a big part um, in just those early years. Uh, but it was during the millennial drought that uh, – you know, we saw the local the river at our local spot completely dry out and walking kilometre after kilometre of a dry riverbed was extremely formative in, in uh, driving the advocacy that um, uh, myself and others have uh, continued with since then. Um, we've got to learn about other sections of the river, not just our patch, and it really gets under your skin. There's some stunningly beautiful parts of this river, some bits that really take your breath away, but we can also see the severe decline the river has suffered. And that got uh, quite a few of us together and, and really starting to look at some of the facts and figures behind the Moorable. And, you know, to learn that ultimately it was regarded as, the most, or still is regarded as one of the most flow stress in Victoria and Stephen Brack's back. Um, in that era, uh, acknowledged it was the most flow-stressed in Victoria. So we felt that shouldn't continue and really then set ourselves the task of trying to lobby government and um, get community support for reversing the, um, the trajectory of the river. And one of the most potent um, comments, I think, about the river was delivered by 
then CCMA or Catchment Management Authority Chair Peter Gregg, and he said um, in a uh, forward to a, a flow study on the river that unchecked the trend is for the river, the Moorabool, to become little more than a drain. Um, we were pretty determined that trajectory um, was reversed and that's been the focus of our efforts ever since. Mm. Well, it's really concerning and I know that the footage in the documentary shows parts of the river where it really is uh, concerningly lacking in flow and kind of becomes still and obviously um, far less water. It almost looks like a, a semi-drained creek in one spot in that film. I wonder if you could um, share with us the dynamics of the river and how it actually operates and um, and runs through, like down from Wombat, Wombat Forest. I know it branches off into two branches and you talk in the film and explain about the presence of dams um, and how all of that, the groundwater, and how that feeds into the river and how it actually functions. Yeah, so at the head of the catchment, there's a, a groundwater management area and what the studies showed was for every megalitre of water that came out of that groundwater area, that was 0.6 less of a megalitre that made it into the river. And one of the um, interviewees in the film, um, Peter Dalhouse, um, explains that a river only flows when it's not raining because of that groundwater coming into the river. So as you come down the river, um, both the east and the west Moorabool are heavily dammed um, and those dams, uh, most of them are the water authorities. So Central Highlands Water and, and Barn Water uh, take water from those dams to supply both Geelong and Ballarat. At the heart of the Moorabool or just uh, above where the East Moorabool joins is an enormous dam and for those listeners in Geelong who you know, may think about where their water comes from, um, quite often the answer will be, well, we know the West Barwon Reservoir in the Otways and many people will have visited if they've driven up through forest. That reservoir is about 20,000 megalitres. Um, the one on the Moorabool is 60,000 and this is on a river with one-third the flow. So there's very little wonder that um, this river is highly stressed um, as you come down the river from there, there are certain offtakes. When you get close to Geelong, the river, as I explained in the film, faces another huge um, challenge, and that's the Finesford Quarry. Uh, this is a limestone quarry which has been operating for well over 100 years, and what they've done is on two occasions diverted the course of the Moorable, um, basically put it into a concrete channel. Uh, the problem is that the one done in the 1930s has fallen into total disrepair and the water drains out of the bed of the river and basically flows into the quarry to be pumped out further down. And this has enormous impacts on the river and migratory species, etc. But those pumps are due to be switched off sometime in the future and that will have a devastating impact on connectivity um, right at the mouth of the river. Yeah. And in terms of where um, things get the worst in terms of the flow and, and um, obviously the water becoming stagnant, where do you think the, the kind of the worst impacts of this um, over allocation and these impact in, and these effects actually have? Like what, what kind of part of the Murrable do you think is most distressed? Look, I'd probably 
um, stick the hand up for the East Moorable. That that uh, that is really um, in terrible condition. Uh, what happens in the East Moorable is the uh, the water authority actually channels water uh, around the river, so the the water doesn't get a chance to have that dual use of being transported uh, down the river to an offtake. Um, it's it's got enormous problems with salinity. Um, uh, certainly, uh, streamside vegetation is almost non-existent in large sections. But I'd also say the southern uh, part near Finesford and Batesford, the science says that under natural conditions that should be enjoying 90 megalitres a day of flow. Well, that's been reduced to just 10. And the, uh, the annual overflows of the river that used to occur um, are very rare now. So those anabranches and billabongs that used to get a drink of water, um, they only get a drink very, very rarely. And, and that's only when the Lala Reservoir spills, it uh, goes over the top down the spillway. And that's happening rarer, um, far less frequently than what it even did 10 to 15 years ago. Before we bring in Erin Cameron, I wanted to also ask about one of the natural features of um, that's part of the Moorable River and surrounds it. And you just mentioned there the riverbeds and vegetation, and clearly that is really key and is addressed in the film in terms of um, produce, reducing salinity, which is caused by erosion. Uh, but there is one really stunning uh, part that I was struck by, which was the granite. And um, obviously I know the granite falls are uh, one part of that area, which is really quite unique and beautiful. Um, so I wonder if you could share with us some of those really uniquely inspiring um, parts of the ecology that, that make up the river, not even just the, the water, obviously, but um, the natural environs and also the animals that um, are, are attracted to that area. Look, there are sections of the Moorable which are, as I said, stunning, and particularly down from Lao Lao Reservoir. Um, the the Lao Lao uh, forest and further down, even and below Shiok, some of that gorge country. I mean, I've, I've swum in the Moorable at um, a farmer's place, Peter Strays, who's in the film, and I've had eel elvers making their way up across my body to then climb the rocks in front of me. Um, just extraordinarily deep, beautiful um, part of the river. The, uh, you can sit there and you can see the wallabies up on the, um, on the cliff facing. You, you can see you know, echidnas, there's platypus, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just um, envelops you uh, when you're in those parts of the river. Um, the sections between uh, around Meredith, for instance, um, which you can access, uh, there's three bridges across the Moorable. Some of those are, are absolutely stunning. Um, I've walked quite a bit of that area with a, um, Barry Gilson, the Wuthering Man, uh, mentioned in the film. And, you know, he, both he and I just drink the place in. It's, it's extraordinarily beautiful. 
Yeah, is it any wonder? And uh, I really appreciated hearing from Alison Puglio, who's a almost regular guest on this show, I guess now, um, who talks about fungi on Uncommon Sense. But she told, told some really amazing stories, one in particular about those migratory eels that actually come from the ocean and go into the Moorabool and how critical that connection is and that the river is flowing so that the eels can survive. Oh, my word. And when she talks about them coming from the Coral Sea and the journey they've taken, and I can tell you, I, I, we did the interview with her and then I'm standing in the river with it, watching these eels go up the, this rock face and you want to help every single one of them because yeah. you know the journey that they've undertaken to get there. And that, that rhythm of the river, which really, you know, um, speaks to a, a living entity, um, uh, it, it just... You know, this, this river looks after so many people, but it also looks after these um, ecosystems and species like the, the eel, the shorefin eel. And once you become aware of that, you, you know, your heart really opens to the river and, and when you recognise the plight, plight it's in, it just drives you to do something for it. It certainly uh, brought me on board watching this film and uh, I really wanted to bring in now Dr Erin O'Donnell who um, is an expert in water law and also the rights of nature, particularly the rights of rivers, which is really interesting. And uh, Erin's latest book is called Legal Rights for Rivers uh, and you've, I know Erin, been publishing some interesting papers on this as well and have um, provided some quotes for this documentary in, in terms of just how, you know, wonderful it is and critical it is to bring this issue to the attention of uh, the public. So I wanted to, to bring you in here and ask about your um, your introduction to rivers and also the Murrabool and what has driven you to be in this area um, and then we'll get into some of the water law aspects. Thanks, Amy. Um, I guess, I mean, the, the short answer about what's brought me here is really trying to understand how we can better care for rivers. So um, going back many years now, um, in a former role, I helped to create the Victorian Environmental Water Holder, which was the first time that the state decided that water rights for the environment should be held by an independent agency. Um, but when we did that, the environment started to take on new forms of legal personality. It started to have new legal rights. It started to participate in the market. And so that, for me, raised a whole lot of questions about how does that change our relationship with the environment? If rivers are starting to assert themselves with legal rights and to participate in the market, so buying and selling water rights, then does that change our relationship to rivers? Does it change our responsibility to rivers? Do we start to expect that rivers then start to look after themselves? So that was that's really brought me into a very exciting international space. And I think um, the work that Cameron and others are doing on the Moorable fits beautifully into um, a tapestry of events which are unfolding across the world that see rivers being recognised in lots of different countries as having the status of a legal person. And we can talk a little bit about that if you're interested. But I think more fundamentally, and this was something that, that Cameron mentioned just now, they are being recognised as alive, as living beings in their own right. And that's a really profound transformative shift. 
Mm. Well, uh, it's undeniable really, isn't it, that they're alive, especially when you watch this film and you get to understand the very different perspectives um, that all see the river and its health as vital for the human beings in the area, the farming um, properties and businesses, the wineries, um, the townships, the people who love the river um, and have that personal connection, obviously the First Nations peoples uh, who also have that very strong connection to the river. Um, It has so many different points of contact and points of meaning and it's something that um, the film draws out is the issue, and Alison Pulio, I know, mentions this, is if we're just quantifying its value in economic terms, then we're missing out on the qualitative values, the things that are really hard to measure and that we probably won't be able to measure uh, even if an economist decided to create an arbitrary model to um, try and put a dollar value on certain things that are not quantifiable. So I wanted to, uh, to, I guess, bring you in on that point as well and to ask about how we as um, a society but also as the law view rivers given that um, this river and, you know, other rivers in Australia seem to have a very um, transactional kind of focus in terms of water allocation and um, the reliance, the very heavy reliance of uh, commerce and humans on these rivers in particular. So I think that's a really good question. And to understand it in the Australian context, um, we need to acknowledge the impacts of colonisation. So the change in people's relationship with rivers really started to happen when um, white people, when English people arrived in Australia and started claiming the land for their own. Before that, um, and in the law of First Nations and traditional owners across Australia, um, country, country includes rivers, it includes whole landscapes. Country um, is alive and country is something that um, people are in a relationship with. Um, so it is something that you owe obligations to um, and that you have mutual uh, dependency with. So that that's the origin um, of our relationship with rivers from a human scale. Um, but I think what's happened since then, um, and particularly, you know, since 1788 and Australia's um, status changing to a, a British colony, what started to change in our relationship with rivers was that they became merely legal objects. They had no rights of their own. They certainly weren't recognised as alive. They were objects over which human beings um, and largely white human beings, because, of course, Aboriginal people were almost entirely dispossessed of their rights to land and water, um, white human beings had dominion over rivers. And that's really carried through very strongly um, all the way through until very recently um, when we're starting to see some shift in the law. But even there, I think in, in Australia, there's only one river that has been formally recognised in law as a living entity, and that's the Birrarung, the Yarra that flows through Melbourne. So I think there is appetite in Victoria for recognising more rivers in this way because it really does change the conversation. It changes the narrative around what a river is and what we are doing with a river. So you picked up on this idea that that rivers have been in this transactional, trapped really, in this transactional exploitative relationship with human beings. And that's that's certainly the case and it continues to be the case for most rivers across Australia. Um, But once we recognise that a river is alive, it moves us out of that um, transactional 
question of what can we get from the river and starts to push us into a space where we begin asking, well, what do we want for the river? And when you acknowledge that the river is alive, you can ask the second question, which is, well, how do we get there with the river? And so the river becomes a collaborator, an ally, a partner in its own management. And that can be a really powerful shift. Yeah. Well, from a layperson's perspective, just thinking about what you've said in terms of giving legal rights to the Birrarung and the Yarra, it makes you think, well, if one river in Victoria has those rights, why shouldn't the other rivers have those rights? I mean, is there something that's really distinctly uh, different in terms of, you know, the um, the the right to claim rights? Uh, you know, should all rivers be equal? If you grant one uh, legal rights, shouldn't you be looking to at least start the process of um, bestowing the same level of respect on others? So I think that's right. I think the challenge with it becomes that the most successful examples of recognising that rivers are alive, and I should clarify that the Birrarung does not have legal person status, which means it can't go to court and it can't own property in its own right, but it does have that status as a living entity. So we're starting to change our relationship without necessarily changing the legal powers of the river. Um, but just to, yeah, to link that back in, one of the, the drivers of success is the relationship between people and the river. So... To change the status of the river in law, um, the most successful strategy for that is through place-based legislation. So legislation which is really targeted around a specific river and the community of people that live along and love the river. And where these kinds of legal reforms are led by traditional owners, then they, they seem to have lasting success. So we can see this in the example of the Birrarung, the Yarra. Uh, we can also see this in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the example of the Whanganui River. So when the legal reform is shaped by traditional owners um, and when it is the community around the river um, and their relationship with the river that is at the heart of this new piece of legislation, those are the two critical ingredients, I think, for success um, at scale. And I think that poses a real challenge for the way that we do legal reform in Australia because we tend to abstract um, and universalise. So we start to say, well, maybe all rivers should have this status. But how do we meaningly confer that on all those rivers without having a very clear voice from community, from traditional owners, a voice that emanates from place, and that's something that really comes through very strongly in in Cameron's film. Mm, it really does. And Cameron, I think what is really interesting as well is obviously that there is a local community and it has been really active for a very long time. Um, obviously, Palm, the People for a Living Moorable, which you are the coordinator of, you know, linking in with groups like Land Care uh, in the local areas that surround the Moorable River, and of course, the Wotherong tribe, who are the local traditional owners of the land. Um, these are, you know, very passionate advocates. Um, and I was reading through your website and looking through the previous articles and advocacy, and this is something which has really been impressive and going on for a long time. And um, the, the voice that this film gives is really great because it's bringing together all of those uh, wonderful and beautifully passionate people um, who love this river. So I, I wanted to ask you about 
some of the things that this group, Palm and the broader community, have been doing together. And I know that the film draws out and addresses some of the issues like land clearing that Erin mentioned is um, a result of colonisation, given that white settlers who dispossessed uh, First Nations peoples had a very strong propensity to clear land across the whole state, and that certainly did affect uh, the river itself. So, you know, we have seen in the film um, some really interesting initiatives that local community groups have been taking to try and improve the overall health of the river themselves. So I wonder if you could um, share with us some of those stories as well. Yeah, the focus of Palm has always been the flows. Um, that that has been what's driven us. Um, the the two filmmakers, Ian Penner and Stephen Oates, I mean, they were um, have been part of the original group uh, back twelve odd years ago when we pushed hard to get um, the environmental allocation for the river um, enacted for the for the Moorable. Um, we in that campaign back then. I, I really came to recognise the power of the film as a medium. Uh, I remember taking the film to a um, council meeting at the Golden Plains uh, Shire and there was some fairly gruff farmers sitting around as councillors and with arms crossed and we had a short 12-minute film on that occasion and just to see the arms becoming uncrossed and them leaning forward and recognising parts of the river that they might have grown up around and the change that that brought about in their demeanour and hopefully their attitudes um, was was quite um, uh, awe-inspiring for me. And during that time, we, we managed to get the three shires, the Moorable, the Golden Plains and the Geelong, to each have a councillor to form a group councillors for the Moorable River, and that was a really strong part of the lobbying effort that uh, we put in. So, look, that focus on flows means that, um, you know, we're, we're not a group that's looking to improve uh, the condition of, of around the river with vegetation or anything like that. That falls to landcare groups, and there's some brilliant landcare groups um, along the river, and um, we purposefully offered the film to each of the landcare groups, uh, the uh, Geelong Landcare Network and the Moorable um, Landcare Group to run the film in uh, both Geelong and Ballarat. And we thought that was um, a really essential part of it because these are the people that put in countless hours and often uh, a lot of personal funds into improving um, the river and the banks and the vegetation and, and doing works along the river. So we're, we're one part of um, looking after the river. Uh, there's many other people um, doing their bit. But in the end, a river without water um, isn't really a river. And for us, um, the, the challenge for us is to really try and deal with the politics, try and get the interests of the river um, up in the government and uh, politicians' consciousness because I think, you know, when we've had a chance to sit down with politicians or bring them onto the river, you know, that that understanding, level of understanding which we see within them um, has in the past been really pivotal to actions on the river. Um, unfortunately, you deal with a whole new group quite often, um, both within departments and within 
the political parties, and so that education effort never stops. And we've got an opportunity at the moment because there's a strategy review which is underway, and that to us is a pivotal moment. And so the timing of the release of the film really was um, centred around that review and the draft, which is going to be available soon, you know, really will be asking for community input and we're looking to drive that community input and have people who have been enlightened about the condition of the moorable and are prepared to stand up for it, well, that will be the opportunity for them to um, have a say for the future of the river. Well, that's excellent to hear. And I wanted to ask about um, environmental allocation, given that that's something that you have clearly taken a, a clear stance and role on. Where are we at with environmental allocation? And for those who may not have heard the discussions around environmental allocation in other chats, like I, I've spoken about the Murray-Darling before, and obviously environmental allocation is a, a sticking point there. What is the situation with the Murrable and um, is that part of the review? Are we seeking to try to increase the environmental allocation? Oh, most definitely. The, the, the last um, Central Region Sustainable Water Strategy said the Murrable needs 20,000 megalitres of more water to sustain itself. Um, through that process, there was two and a half thousand megalitres, and, and that was in the form of a, a uh, storage. Uh, I think 11% of the Lao Lao Reservoir was set aside for storing environmental water, um, and that did have some benefits. It, it, it certainly uh, for that section. We were actually told by the CCMA that that was unlikely to assist any part of the downstream um, uh, areas like Batesford. Um, Fortunately, Bowen Water and uh, the CCMA have coordinated some flows down the river, and so we have seen some improvements down there. But really, it's a, it's a fraction of what the river needs. What was also allocated as environmental flows was discharges out of the quarry that we spoke about earlier, and that's three, three to three and a half thousand megalitres. But those pumps are due to be switched off when Geelong uh, expands to the west and to the north. And as I said, that will have a dramatic impact on, on the river. So here we are facing uh, going backwards in regards to environmental flows for the river. Granted that, that those flows out of the quarry only impact a, a small part of the river. So we're calling for environmental flows across all the reservoirs in the river. There's no reason why they shouldn't exist in, on the Quinji Bora, the, the Moorable Reservoir, the Bostock Reservoir, etc. You know, that, that would just be common sense. But there's other initiatives that could be taken with regard to water. But, you know, the, the DELP have been quite clear that once you take over 30% of a river's allocation, um, you really start impacting quite dramatically its health. And when we talk about the moral, we're talking about 90% being taken, certainly by the time it gets down to the lo those lower sections. So there's a... Very stark reason why it needs those environmental flows. But the final point is that the long-term water assessment, uh, which was done uh, prior to uh, this uh, initiative to review the, the strategy, showed that the river is receiving 20% less inflows due to a changing climate. So the, the river is dying before our eyes. And we're saying, you know, the how this process will be measured 
how the review will be measured and how the government response will be measured will really be um, reflective of what they managed to do for the Moorable River. And we're asking them to really step up because mm. the, the river diet is, is in dire need for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, just before I head back to Erin, uh, Cameron, I just wanted to ask about some of the issues relating to population growth. Obviously, you've mentioned their climate change and drought relating to climate change, which is a massive issue. Um, but also popular population growth for anyone who lives in Ballarat or the city of Greater Geelong, they will be very well aware of the massive number of estates that have sprung up um, on the outskirts of Geelong and closer to the coast. And it really is something that comes up in the film. And um, there is this discussion that, well, surely we could come into the 21st century and think about innovative ways that we could actually actually source water that isn't taking too much from the river. So I was just wondering from your perspective, is that something that Palm is looking to continue the conversation on is to try and think outside the square about these issues and to, um, if the government, if the state government is going to continue approving and the council to continue approving um, these new estates to be built, and there are just so many being built um, and people moving down to this area, do we need to be realistic about um, how much water can actually be given to humans for human use? My word, and this is a pivotal point. Um, if we're looking to double our population by 2060, I think some of the forecasts are for that water, uh, the rivers can't give up anymore. I mean, they're, they're highly flow-stressed. And that low-cost, gravity-fed water that supplied our towns and our cities, well, that isn't going to cope. And so we have to look to manufactured sources of water. I mean, we're a little bit agnostic of where it comes from, but through the film, you know, we have people discussing um, des desalination, uh, particularly for Geelong, um, the use of stormwater, reuse of stormwater, and recycled water. And the, the recycled water debate, I know there's reticence within government to go there, but that has to be part of our future. And I think, you know, that, that ultimately will allow pressure to come off rivers because once you go to a, a different source, then the, the Swiss 15 years ago said once both Geelong and Ballarat look to potable water substitution through recycled water, that's 6,000 megalitres that would come back to the river. Now, that's more than double what is available at Lau Lau. So here's an opportunity to really right some of the wrongs on this river. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping the government will step up and take that opportunity. Mm, well, if a government does, you would assume it's going to be this government because they seem to have a political appetite for big changes and big reform. Erin, um, I know you have to go, so we'll just uh, quickly touch and uh, check in with you on this final point that I wanted to bring in, which is the differences that you raised earlier about recognising rivers as a living entity, which is something that we are doing in Victoria, versus giving a, a river legal personhood without having um, to get through, get into that legal nitty-gritty. From a big-picture perspective, do you think it is um, something that Victoria and local communities should be advocating for? And if one was to do that, is there really um, a reason to choose for one route versus the other in a legal sense in terms of how um, a, a river's rights can be protected um, in terms of the right level of allocation and, and preserving that connection that humans have with the rivers? 
Okay, so um, that's a really big question. Um, to give you a very brief answer, when we think about what a legal person is, um, human beings are legal persons, so is a corporation. Um, and the corporate form is what we typically think of when we think about um, legal personhood, because those are the, the specific rights and duties assigned by the law to a legal person. And so it includes the rights to sue. So you can go to court and sue someone. You can also be sued in court. So it immediately puts you into this adversarial legal framework. Um, it includes the right to hold property, um, including water rights. It includes the right um, to enter into and enforce contracts. So those are very legalistic uh, ways of looking at things. For me, one of the interesting and telling um, histories of the corporation is that it was designed to separate risk from reward. So shareholders could gain the reward from a, a corporation's profits, but they were not exposed to any of the risks undertaken by that corporation, you know, in, in shipping or in, in mining or in any of the, um, the sort of um, businesses that 500 years ago corporations were actually running. So if we think about rivers, rivers probably don't have any interest in separating risk from reward. And in fact, when we think about legal personality, um, it can fracture the relationship between people and country. Um, and so Aboriginal writers like Virginia Marshall have written on this to say that not only can it, it fracture the relationship between people and country, but it can also um, potentially displace traditional owner rights and interests in country. So I think we need to be wary of the legal person. It, it is a lot more powerful. So it does bring very specific legal powers. But unless you've got funding um, and organisational um, identity to back that up, um, then sometimes those legal powers aren't actually worth the paper they're written on. When we think about um, recognising rivers as living entities, what that does is actually centres our relationship with them. We recognise that they are alive. We recognise that we need to keep them alive. And so that, I think, is where we're starting to see the transformative long-term changes um, that could actually drive significant outcomes for rivers. And that's the kind of model that certainly traditional owners in Australia um, interpreted in different ways depending on, on the context, but that's the model that they are certainly more interested in um, because it's, it reflects and provides a space for um, the relationship between people and rivers. So I think that's, yeah, that's probably the angle that I would, I would be recommending at this stage because I think we need, we need to change the relationship. We need to change the conversation. Um, we don't necessarily need to go to court. And in fact, one of the big gaps around the world everywhere is that when rivers are recognised as legal persons or living persons, um, none of them are actually receiving rights to water. So at the moment, we have this massive disconnect between the way that we recognise rivers in law and the way we actually protect their right to flow. And so all of those environmental water allocations um, that Cameron was talking about there. So I think we need to focus on the relationship between people and rivers. And the way to do that is uh, the living entity or living person concept. And we also need to build that bridge between the way that people care for and understand rivers and the way we actually manage them as water resources. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And uh, you've really distilled a very complex topic into, um, you know, a really wonderful answer. So thank you, Erin, for explaining that uh, to us. And I'll let you go now and I'll um, just keep Cameron for one minute to mention the film screening. But thank you so much for joining us and explaining this uh, in such beautiful language. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you. I've been chatting with Dr. Erin O'Donnell and she is uh, a fellow at the Melbourne Law School and is an expert in water rights and the legal rights of rivers. Now, Cameron, um, bringing you back in uh, to conclude this conversation, um, I mean, I feel like my mind has certainly been opened so much uh, by having this conversation, but also by watching this film. And as you said, it is a very powerful film and the medium of film is so powerful, given what you mentioned there about uh, the farmers who uncrossed their arms. Now, I know that um, the community in RRR and beyond are really passionate about the environment. So I know that they would love to understand this issue more and we've just touched on some of the topics that are covered in this film. I know that there is um, has been a screening in Ballarat and there is going to be a screening in Geelong which is hosted by the Geelong Land Care Network on July the 3rd which is a Saturday at 7pm at the Peter Thwaites Lecture Theatre in Warren Ponds which is I believe on the Deakin University campus. Um, I just had a quick check on the website and it looks like it only just sold out, but I'm wondering whether um, people could uh, go on a wait list or whether there'll be future screenings that they could attend. Oh, certainly. And, yes, I was told um, some of my family missed out on tickets because they <laughs> ended up uh, too, too late. And it was quite extraordinary in Ballarat. We, we went from 75 maximum under COVID to 130 with a, a, a day's and a half's notice and it was sold out. We weren't mm -hmm. sure how popular it would be. Geelong virtually did the same. The 75 limit went off and we're now at 150 within a couple of days. Um, so we were looking to do more screenings, both in Balan and um, Bannockburn, uh, but there will be discussion on, um, and we have spoken to Erin and possibility of bringing it to Melbourne. Um, we, we've been overwhelmed by the response and we'll, we'll have to rethink. Uh, obviously, as small community groups, there's um, uh, quite a bit of effort involved, but we'll certainly be trying to take this to a wider audience. And we've also had quite a bit of um, expressions of interest from schools as well. So the film will be getting out there and hopefully um, there'll be further opportunities for people to view it. Yeah, well, I'll certainly let everyone know on this show, as soon as there are future screenings, I'll inform everyone uh, through our channels. And also, um, I believe that collectives like People for Remurable, you know, you are volunteer-based and you do do this because um, you love it and it's that your passion and, um, and something that is driving a driving force for people in the community. So uh, it is something that is understandable. It's it's kind of um, really impressive what you've done so far to advocate for the Murrabool River. And if people want to connect in with your work to support your work, um, they can also head to your website at murrabullriver.org uh, to find out more. Is that the best way for people to get in touch with you and to connect in if they wanted to um, provide support or, or join in and, and be an interested party? Yeah, most certainly. Look, if um, the, the website, uh, there's a contact page there and, and if people leave their details. What we're asking um, is, is really the, the campaign in many ways uh, right now is focused around the um, strategy review and I think it's really important that the community voices have been heard. We haven't been happy with the way um, the community input has been sought uh, for this process and I think um, that's the first cab off the rank people can um, 
get involved in that process, but it's also talking um, to other people about the, the situation. It's not only the Moorable, the, the bar and river is also uh, highly impacted. And writing to politicians, I think that's always a, a great way. So we put some sheets at the back of the uh the venue uh, during the last um, showing and we had probably half the people actually fill those out indicating that they're prepared to uh, assist with this campaign. So, look, um, I'd love people to um, stick their hand up because the, the river certainly needs it and, you know, efforts um, like yourself, Amy, of um, publicising it are really deeply appreciated because that's how the word gets out and, you know, without people like yourself, um, you know, we may be sitting there looking at uh, half-filled venues, but um, the work that you guys do, um, it, as I said, is really appreciated. So thank you. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for everything you've done so far and obviously extend our thanks to the greater Palm Group um, for putting on such a wonderful documentary and also arranging these screenings and obviously lobbying really hard and getting that public engagement going and Triple uh, R and myself are only too happy to facilitate that. And um, I do wish you all the best of luck and it would be great to keep in touch and make sure that um, those listening who are really interested in this uh, issue are kept abreast of the developments and um, can take part. So thank you so much, Cameron, for joining us today. And also thank you to Dr. Erin O'Donnell, who also joined us um, as well during this conversation. And I hope you have a really wonderful week. Excellent. Thanks very much, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. This is the show, Uncommon Sense, with myself, Amy Mullins, and you're tuned in to Triple R FM, 102.7 FM, on your dial, and... I'm really just so delighted to be welcoming back onto the program one of my favourite guests, and I love all of them, but Nick is so passionate about the Pacific and he speaks so well about all of these issues and understands the nuances of um, so many of the different countries that make up the Pacific that are our our neighbours, our dear neighbours, really, that we should be treating far better than we ever do. Um, and so it's something that obviously, you know, requires mutual respect between Australia and the Pacific. And one of the ways that you foster mutual respect is by having mutual understanding and appreciating um, the situations that each country faces. So to educate us and to keep us informed and help us to engage better with our neighbours, I'm joined by Nick McClellan. He's a Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story, and he also works for Ireland's business magazine in Fiji. And uh, as I said earlier, Nick um, has obviously been a regular traveller to the Pacific and particularly Fiji, but also beyond. And so he has um, strong ties intellectually and personally with the region. So I welcome Nick now to talk about a range of topics, including the constitutional crisis in Samoa, the COVID outbreaks in Fiji, and also the latest updates in a push for a third referendum on independence in New Caledonia. Hi there, Nick, and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Good morning, Amy. 
Yeah, well, I, as you say, I travel for my work around the Pacific, but um, at the moment I'm homebound in Melbourne. And, uh, um, you know, the pandemic has really hit Pacific Island neighbours in similar ways to, uh, to Australia, to New Zealand, to other countries. Some have managed the pandemic very well. Um, some have uh, gone very well over a year, but have got another surge of cases, and that's true of Fiji, as we'll discuss. Um, but the pandemic has really revealed fault lines in every society around the world, and it's caused citizens to think about their government, um, the capability of their politicians, and indeed the systems around health, around education, around economic support that the pandemic has really opened up. Um, and uh, it's leading to significant changes across the region and really exacerbating some fault lines that have been there for, for some time. Yeah, well, it's certainly the case when you look at world history that when these big crises happen, like a pandemic or an epidemic, depending on the scale, uh, that these things do tend to crystallise issues to force them and bring them to the front and often to uh, be a kind of catalyzing moment for people to take charge to make decisions and to perhaps take greater risks than they would have in a kind of risk-free conservative environment. So it's uh, very, very interesting to see in the news uh, a few weeks ago now that there has been and there still is a constitutional crisis in Samoa. And it was really, uh, obviously, I, I saw this issue because I have certainly advocated for women in leadership and women in politics for a long time. So many people were very excited to see uh, that Samoa elected their first female prime minister, Fiame Naomi Matafa, and she was previously Samoa's deputy prime minister uh, under a different party, um, which was the ruling Human Rights Protection Party and has been in power for almost uh, or around 40 years, which is a very long time uh, for a party. And we did, interestingly, see Fiamme uh, move to a, a new party, the FAST Party, uh, which is, that's an acronym, I won't um, spell it all out, but that is really interesting that there's already that political upheaval and that, um, you know, clear move and change to a different political allegiance. Uh, but then we have seen in the latest election in Samoa, uh, people in Samoa choose a new party and a new leader that happens to be uh, Fiame Naomi Matafa. Um, but unfortunately, she has not been able to take charge and and be um, take on that transfer of power for that ceremony to officially take place. So I wonder if you could share with us, first of all, uh, and I know this is very complex, so <laughs> we'll, we won't get to the full nitty-gritty of it all, but um, why has there been this deadlock now um, between the two parties and the two leaders, uh, the prime minister, the outgoing prime minister, and the prime minister elect? Well, as you say, the the Human Rights Protection Party has been governing in Samoa for for many decades. Um, the outgoing prime minister Tuilapa was first elected to parliament in 1981 and has been prime minister continuously since 1998. So that's long-standing, and indeed he's one of the um, longest-serving political leaders across the Pacific Islands. Um, the, he's um, you know, been a major figure both at national level and regional level and has brought in a younger generation of people during those decades that he's been in political power. 
and um, Naomi uh, Matafa, uh, whose customary title is Fiame, she um, has been a, a leading figure in his government over many years. She was the first woman in Samoa to uh, um, take up the position as Minister of Education and has had a long interest in education. She became, once again, the first woman to become Deputy Prime Minister under Tuilapa. Um, but they had a number of falling outs, which are complex and, you know, a bit difficult to describe quickly. Um, and uh, as you say, she resigned and joined the, the new FAST party. When they contested national elections this year, FAST did much better than everyone is expecting, I think including themselves. You know, opinion polls suggest that they might get eight or ten seats in the, in the parliament uh, to, to form a, a strong opposition against the Human Rights Protection Party. But um, basically it was nearly 50-50. Um, and there's been a long series of court cases um, uh, which have, uh, uh, you know, delayed the the uh, transition from the uh, HRPP party to the new Fast Party in government. Um, indeed, Fiamme Naomi Matafa went to be sworn in um, in Parliament, and the doors were locked. Um, so they held a swearing in outside the Parliament House. Um, the Supreme Court just this week has ruled that that was not uh, appropriate in the context, but has ruled very clearly that Parliament must sit. And the Supreme Court has just announced that Parliament must sit within a week. So by Monday next week, the Samoan Parliament must meet to uh, elect on the floor of, uh, of Parliament a new Prime Minister. Now, at the moment, FAST has the numbers um, they have 26 seats and the Human Rights Protection Party, 24. Um, the HRPP lost uh, one of their, their people um, in a petition um, because of bribery allegations and so on during the election campaign. So unless things change and everything's possible, um, FAST uh, will have the numbers on the floor of Parliament when it convenes in coming days and Fiomi um, Naomi Matafa will be elected as uh, Prime Minister of Samoa, the first woman to lead the country. And you're seeing that around the region where women are stepping up to positions in uh, um, government. You've had, uh, you know, from Jacinda Ardern to uh, uh, former president of Marshall Islands, Hilda Heine, um, uh, Cynthia Ligia, the president of New Caledonia in the past, um, a number of deputy prime ministers around the region, ambassadors, uh, heads of regional organisations like the Pacific Islands Forum, You've had senior women stepping into leadership positions around the region, uh, but that's in a region that has relatively few women in parliament. Indeed, it's one of the worst regions in the world in terms of equality of representation for men and women in national parliaments. And so to have Fiamme step up as prime minister is a, an important um, symbol as well as substance for, for young women around the region. Yes, well, I, I think... Women um, perhaps looking on who are not based in Samoa, so probably don't understand the obvious complexities of the political situation, might even just look at the situation from afar and at the superficial level see um, a man desperately grasping onto his long-held power and a woman rightfully and uh, merit-based uh, appointment and election and completely legal election being, I guess, undermined in terms of her power and influence and see those gender dynamics at play, which are obviously just one factor among so many factors. But it does make you wonder, um, apart from the obvious, why the incumbent has been so reluctant to uh, 
give up his power given that this is really in a legal sense a done thing a, a done deal in the sense that he can't change the election results well there are a lot of complex uh, complex legal questions around this but it's it's you know there a lot of people in the Samoan diaspora in Australia in New Zealand elsewhere have been looking at this generational change and the role of women stepping up uh, in leadership positions in the public sphere where they've always held them in the private sphere and indeed it, you know Fiamma is a very uh, you know higher member of the the uh, what is called the matai the chiefly status within Samoa um, but a lot of people have made allusions to Donald Trump you know the denial that that um, you know I've lost um, mm. the refusal to accept the electoral maths and and uh, and to try and hang on um, I must say that the Samoan situation has been resolved with a relative level of calm and uh, and dialogue amongst people, um, despite all the parliamentary manoeuvring and the legal cases compared to other situations that you see around the world. So I don't think it's worth exaggerating the uh, the, um, the 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 level of conflict in Samoa. But at the same time, it is a constitutional crisis, and it's about how do you make that transition to a younger generation of leaders. Um, who who weren't part of the independence generation, the, the the leaders who led the country to sovereign independence, and that's the case in Vanuatu, in New Caledonia, and other places around the the region where there's a generational change of leadership. And um, you know, as I say, this is all happening in the middle of a health and an economic crisis brought on by the global pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know that is a really good point to make because when we see political crises, they can really go one of two ways. Uh, you can see a lot of civil unrest around the issue <clears throat> and you can also see uh, mainly that tension only, you know, confined to the leadership and thankfully in this case being resolved through the Supreme Court. Um, to close out that topic or at least that um that avenue or, or, or kind of solution, which is to have the parliament sit as per the Samoa Supreme Court, is there any way that that uh, won't eventuate by Monday? Is there some way that, um, you know, should they can sit without uh, swearing in the new parliament? Or is this something that is a foregone conclusion? Look, the ruling of the Supreme Court is pretty clear and pretty forthright. Um, they've said that parliament must sit that office of um, officers of the parliament, like the speaker, who indeed is a, a supporter of the outgoing prime minister Tuilapa, um, must you know hold a session within a week, so by Monday. Um, if that doesn't happen, the Supreme Court has sort of hinted that it may revisit the legality of the swearing in of the um, uh, of the, the prime minister Fiamme Matafa, um, if. Um, if the, the full sitting of Parliament doesn't go ahead. So the Supreme Court um, uh, sort of suggested that the swearing in people outside the Parliament building wasn't quite right, but they have sort of hinted that they, you know, if, if, if people can't get into the building, um, they may have another look at it. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the government. And indeed, Australia and New Zealand have both sort of stepped up in the early days. They both put out statements. Um, uh, Australia's Foreign Minister Payne, uh, New Zealand Foreign Minister Mahuta both put out statements saying it's up to the people of Samoa to sort this out. We don't want to take sides. You know, you've got to work through your constitutional processes. More recently, Australia has 
has been sort of making statements that they look forward to the transition. So I think the the writing is on the wall, at least for now, for the HRPP. But um, Tui Lap is a very seasoned politician, so everything's possible. Mm, that's really interesting, Nick, uh, what you say about the Supreme Court. So it'll be very interesting to watch this issue and hopefully see it to its rightful conclusion, which is uh, for the, the Prime Minister who's been elected to actually take their place as well as those in the parliament who've been elected in in any of the parties. Um, Nick, let's talk about Fiji because I did just watch a, a news piece to try and get a sense of what's happening in Fiji uh, and, and saw some video footage as well and some interviews with some of those health experts on the ground there talking about the COVID outbreak over there. It does sound like uh, there's been obviously a number of um, concerns for a while now, but it certainly has escalated in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic in Fiji. And there also appeared to be uh, some level, a small level of conflict uh, amongst some of the younger people in Fiji. And it appears to be that there are economic uh, concerns fueling some of that conflict. So I wonder if you could um, set the scene for us and help us to understand some of the nuances of the situation situation in Fiji for those of us who um, aren't familiar with the domestic situation? Yeah, look, Fiji is a country of um, 850,000, 900,000 people. So it's the um, second biggest island nation after Papua New Guinea in the region. And it's a fairly major economic hub, um, you know, just by geographic location and infrastructure. Of course, many Australians know it as a site for tourism. And indeed, that's part of the big problem. You know, Fiji handled the early days of the pandemic remarkably well, but part of that was through border closures that have seen a a complete collapse of the tourism industry. Um, That tourism made up 40% of gross domestic products. So um, uh, the spin-off was obviously not just people who worked in hotels and restaurants and so on, but all the informal workers who who, you know, gained employment, uh, gained money from uh, the tourism industry, you know, minibus drivers who took people from the airport to their hotels on the Coral Coast, people who grew food for the restaurants, uh, women who made handicrafts for sale to tourists and so on. So over the last year or so, people have done it pretty tough in Fiji economically, and the government, you know, taken on a lot of debt uh, to manage, you know, the economic fallout and provide support And there's been a lot of community response too, some wonderful initiatives um, to support um, vulnerable people, vulnerable communities who've been hit hard by, you know, the changing economics that we've all faced. And you have the same debates in Australia, you know, for the tourism and hospitality sector. What's happened, however, is that there's been a major surge of cases since April this year. So having survived really a year pretty well with only two deaths over the last year, Um, Now Fiji has 3,590 cases and 15 deaths. Um, And uh, in the last 24 hours, I looked up the numbers, 262 people um, were uh, diagnosed with COVID-19. So compared to Brazil or India and so on, the numbers are relatively small. But for Fiji, it's a huge number. And this surge has got a long way to go and people are understandably worried. And as I say of 15 deaths in Fiji, 13 have happened since late April. So um, it's clear that there's a major, major build-up of cases. Um, There's a lot of high rate of positivity from the testing that's being done. 
and Fiji's been calling on neighbouring countries like Australia and New Zealand, but also China and other supporters, other development partners, to assist them with um, uh, uh, equipment, um, with medical expertise, and uh, particularly with vaccines. And Australia has pledged a million doses for Fiji over time, of which I think about nearly 200,000 have uh, arrived. But um, shipments flown in in the last few days. And Australia has sent an OSMAT team, that's the medical assistance team that we've seen deployed elsewhere within Australia and indeed overseas. These are um, a range of experts, you know, health, logistics and other people, infection control people, who are gone to assist the Fijian government um, uh, with this latest surge. You know, I lived in Fiji for a number of years and uh, have a lot of friends there, and it's really worrying to see uh, the pressure. As I say, globally, compared to globally, the numbers are pretty low, um, but it's still, uh, our, you know, a, a surge that's well out of control. And uh, um, this is the new Delta variant that people are talking about, which is the variant that's hitting Sydney at the moment, and indeed Western New South Wales and Northern Territory and so on, much more infectious than previous uh, variants of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, coronavirus. So, you know, it's it's a worrying time for people in Fiji and, the you know, there's a, a lot of action going on to try and, uh, you know, get the community to follow the rules. Um, also, although a lot of misinformation about uh, vaccines and vaccine hesitancy is a big problem. Mm. Well, that is concerning and I know that this is an issue even uh, I recall I think it was Papua New Guinea who were reporting similar things when they had some vaccines um, <clears throat> that were arriving. So this is something that's uh, around the world an issue and varies from country to country, but it's uh, it's something that we're all experiencing in terms of um, concerns around vaccines. And obviously we need to make sure that all of that public health scientific information is accessible to everyone so that people can make informed decisions and to protect themselves using vaccination is pretty much the only way we're going to get on top of these outbreaks and uh, get on top of the pandemic overall. And I did see... My, oh, go yeah, ahead. My colleague, Samasone, my colleague, Samasone Pareti, uh, who's a journalist with Islands Business Magazine, has just been running an interesting uh, initiative using social media, using Facebook, to educate people from his home island group, which are called the Lao Group, and they've been getting people to speak in Laoan dialect to inform them about vaccination, about the safety um, or relative risks of the different you know, vaccines and so on, and talking to people in vernacular languages that they understand and with a cultural context. Um, so getting Laoan health experts, nurses and so on, onto the social media to do webinars and things like that mm. to educate people from their own cultural perspective. And I think that's a real lesson to be learned. And frankly, we need to learn it in Australia. How do you translate the complex medical issues um, about clotting issues or use of AstraZeneca or whatever to people who understand risk and reward from the vaccination program and how important that is? So there's a lot of really good work being done on the ground that doesn't hit the headlines oh. and uh, is often done by locals rather than teams coming in from outside who've got very important skills, but not necessarily the cultural context to work in a place like Fiji. 
Mm, and also that cultural, uh, I guess, mutual respect and exchange and understanding that's required, you know, that the trust that's needed. Uh, and it's interesting to see a couple of things that I noted overnight that uh, some of the hospitals, two hospitals, in fact, that are one of the largest or some of the largest in Fiji have been converted into dedicated COVID-19 facilities, whilst uh, they've actually created a medical ship uh, so that women can deliver their babies on a ship as opposed to going into uh, a hospital and potentially risking their own lives and their child's lives by uh, contracting COVID-19. So it sounds like things are particularly dire there in terms of how their healthcare system is managing and also how um, some of the hotspots are having to be managed in terms of locking them down and, and making sure people aren't moving. Oh, no, many, many Pacific countries have, uh, you know, real stresses on their health system. You know, Fiji lost a lot of doctors, nurses and others who fled to Australia or New Zealand or Canada after the coups that occurred in the 1980s and 2000. I was living in um, Fiji in 2000 during the coup then. And um, after the coup, about 40 or 50 doctors left for greener pastures. These were professionals who could be snapped up by employers in Australia and New Zealand, Canada and other places. And for the public health system to lose that many skilled workers is a major problem. And so these sorts of pressures that have existed for some time on health systems are being played out now. And you only have to look at what's happening in the Australian aged care system to, to see once again how the pandemic is re revealing fault lines um, and how systems aren't working and indeed how systems, economic health, governance have to be adapted to the new realities that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Nick, I know we're running out of time, so we'll jump to New Caledonia. Um, and that's something that we've really discussed a number of times in terms of the independence referendums that we've seen conducted. There's been two so far, uh, which you write about in Inside Story in your latest piece, which is called Third Time Lucky in New Caledonia. And uh, we did talk about the result from October 2020 and uh, the fact that, you know, things are changing. It seems like the air in New Caledonia is slowly shifting in terms of um, the political change that's required to finally have a successful yes vote for independence, and that is to become an independent nation from or away from, I should say, uh, France. So I wonder if you could uh, just kind of check in with us and give us a little update as to where things stand for New Caledonia and also those uh, tensions that clearly have been bubbling uh, between New Caledonia and France in terms of France giving uh, New Caledonia the appropriate amount of attention and respect for these kind of key nationhood discussions. Last month, there was a meeting in Paris um, between the France, France's overseas minister, the French prime minister, and some, but not all, New Caledonian leaders to map out what would happen uh, uh, with the end of, of an agreement that they've had since the late 90s called the Numir Accord. As you say, there's been two referendums so far under this framework agreement. And um, in both cases, the independence movement, the FLNKs, did much better than people were expecting. They got 43% um, yes support for independence in 2018, 47% in 2020, and the feeling was that the next referendum in 2022, people you know, may, may make the shift and um, 
uh, go to to uh, a majority vote for independence. However, France has brought forward the third referendum, not from the end of next year, but to the end of this year in December 2021. And they've done that unilaterally, which has caused a lot of anger amongst the independence movement that, you know, they're going to have, they only had a vote so, what, 14 months ago and they're going to have another one in six months' time. Um, so people are really angry that this is being rushed. And part of that is for French domestic reasons. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron goes to presidential elections next April. Um, the French legislature, the National Assembly, has to have elections before June. And so France is pushing ahead with this New Caledonia issue um, to keep it out of that electoral period. And the Canucks felt, well, why don't we wait till after that electoral period to resolve this problem um, rather than rush it quickly now? So we're going to see a bit of turmoil later in the year. And once again, this is not an issue that's widely discussed in Australia, um, but I think it's uh, it's important because New Caledonia is just uh, one of our closest neighbours, you know, 1,500 kilometres off the coast of Brisbane. Yeah, well, and it also seems that these things shouldn't be rushed in the sense that, uh, you know, New Caledonia has been so close to uh, getting there in terms of the incremental uh, shifts in the vote towards uh, independence and gaining more momentum in that direction. So it would be a shame for it to, uh, to I guess, be undermined by French domestic politics. Well, it's also undermined by the global strategic situation. Even in the last year or two, things have hotted up since the first referendum. Um, and you have uh, President Macron coming to Australia in 2018 to sign a strategic partnership with Australia. France is selling $90 billion worth of submarines to Australia and indeed is, is wanting to join the Quad in the containment of China. Macron's talked about an India-Australia-France axis. Now, France's axis in the Pacific is its Pacific colonies, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallace and Futuna. So if New Caledonia is to move to independence, what does that mean for France's place in this growing Indo-Pacific competition, uh, which is really targeting China? Um, and so I think uh, one of the problems, once again, is that the domestic issues, which have existed for a long time, social, political, economic, cultural, within New Caledonia, are overlain by this geopolitical game that's going on um, the US-China rivalry and how other powers are positioning themselves in the Pacific region um, to, to cope with those changes. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very astute point you make uh, about that global geostrategic part and the waning, potential waning influence of France in our region. Uh, Nick, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm so grateful for your time and I honestly feel like I've uh, learned so much every time we speak. So uh, I, I'm sure everyone listening will also agree that we really appreciate uh, and value your expertise. Look, always happy to come on. There's a lot happening in our region, and I think that, you know our mainstream media fails to really analyse, report, uh, cover the, the, the dynamism of the changes that are happening amongst our near neighbours, and I think it's great that, mm. uh, that there's an opportunity to talk about it. So thanks for the invitation. I'll happy to join you again. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.